This is a 55-minute conversation with Nick Ellery, who's a comedian who's been uh, performing since, I'd say, 2010. He's Australian, very well-modulated speaking voice, very calmly spoken. And uh, he's this kind of, often in gigs, he's an oasis of of a different energy and a, and a calm. Was at the same time of being explosively funny, um, his jokes are both personal in the best way and um, and also um, extremely accessible. So uh, there's a there's a kind of real art to what he does. And if you get a chance, do go and see him because he's not like anyone else out there. And um, but yeah, this is a 55 minute conversation with him. I hope you enjoy it, and I will speak to you on the other side. Hey, Barry Ferns. Yeah, you've got to say at the top, otherwise people just, uh, you know, if you can't, if they can't read <laughs> read your name, they now know it. Just they now know that it is Nick Ellery. Nick Ellery. Um, uh, so, Nick, one of the things I ask people right at the top is um, how you'd describe yourself as a comedian, as uh, people would know. So what would be um, the kind of, the uh, how would you go into doing that? I don't like doing it. Yeah. I don't think any <laughs> yeah. of us like doing it. No. But... I would, and it's it's a it's a moving target, isn't it? Yeah. So, how I was five years ago is probably different to how I am now. But I guess the thing that's always been there—it's always been quite dry. It's been uh, understated, fairly. Eh, I guess that's about as much as I want to say. Because <laughs> that's very dry and understated. Yeah, but if well, you don't want to. What, what do other people say? How fulsome do other people get with their explanations? I, I, I think, um, I don't think anyone's given a really key explanation of what they do. Um, I think Tati McLeod did, um, but, uh, but it's a little bit more grockable because of what she's done is relatively recent and where she's going deliberately. Did you use grockable? Are you throwing in Robert A. Heinlein references? I am, Robert Heinlein references. 2021? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Mate, is right. everything's everything's retro these days? Everything's butted in. Pops eating itself, and we're uh, that was also a dated reference. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, but Clint, yeah, Clint Mansell Heinlein. though wasn't it? Clint Mansell goes on to do the soundtrack work for uh, for um, Aronofsky. Yeah, Aronofsky and Heinlein in the yeah. first minute of this yeah. podcast. Well, so, we're going to we're, we're killing it with the hairy dude audience. Yeah, today. well that's that's what I'm learning right now. There's it I I think Highland's ready for a rebirth. I think the extinction rebellion guys will, and girls will get into Highland. I think uh, stranger from a strange land is very kind of like a Yeah, sure, but wasn't he world. wasn't he seen as being uh, militaristic though? Like oh. he was he supported the Vietnam War. Yeah, he was what the moon is a harsh mistress is yes. uh, is a very kind of militaristic, yeah. kind of like uh, aspirationally kind of militaristic. But a lot of those things were like they're just making a foundation. Um, yeah, you know, Asimov's foundation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With uh, of, Jared Harris as yeah. Harry Seldom. Have you seen the preview for that? 
I saw a trailer, yeah. Yeah, it, it looks all right. Look, I think it might be all right, but it's just, I don't know, they've made it a little bit more kind of, like there's a couple element to it, which there wasn't before. I love interest, but there wasn't yeah, before. Yeah, it looked, it looked a little bit more technicolour than my memory of it. My yeah. memory of it was being pretty Great. talky and conceptual, the yeah. foundation books, rather than, you know, space opera, like a lot of the science fiction at the time. Yeah. There's, um, there's like the, did you see the Brave New World series? Uh, no, I saw a little bit. I saw it. Saw enough to know you didn't want to see it. I went, yeah, no, that doesn't. Yeah. It just looks like, um, you know, TV for the sake of TV. Mm. When they make things to look like prestige TV, they look kind of expensive and big. And you're like, nah, felt, felt pretty empty though. Like you, you've got uh, like as anyone listening will now 100 percent know, and <laughs> um, you've got a huge knowledge of culture and music in particular, a real passion for music. And um, like I could ask you about like the Rolling Stones right now because um, Charlie Watts, Charlie Watts just died. Yeah, and you'd have you know a huge amount to say about it, not just about his music, but also about him as a person. Mm. There's mm. there's your your knowledge because like you played guitar before, and your knowledge of a lot of different pop culture and non-popular culture, just stuff out there. We've gone to the BFI together sometimes. And um, how does that, how would that background influence how you approach comedy? Do you, do, are you kind of aware of any influence that, that brings? It's, well, it's, it's funny because yesterday, Alistair Beckett King, who we both know, mm. tweeted that there was a, uh, I think it's a London transport ad that uses the same music as in the, the film Brazil, the Terry Gilliam film, mm. which is a dystopian depiction of, uh, well, it's a dystopian film. Yeah. And I'd made that same comment to uh, Heidi yeah. the day before. And so I messaged Alistair Beckett King and said, you're stealing my ideas. <laughs> I saw this as well. But we had this conversation about where I said, I envy him his followership because his followership are nerds. Mm. Well, there's enough of them that he can make an obscure film reference. Like he can, uh, the, he said back to me, you know, oh, isn't it terrible when you're banging out Kurostami jokes all day yeah. and no one can get it. Yeah. And that, so when I do comedy or I write comedy and there are references that I just don't bother putting in because I know that they're going to be too niche, which I think is the opposite of what you're meant to do. You're meant to be like Patton Oswalt mm. and you delve into your your obsessive side and that's where your passion lies mm. and you make it accessible and you ignore the fact that 70% of the people don't know who the key grip was on Empire Strikes, Strikes Back and uh, <laughs> you just 70% run with it. of people, did you say? Sorry? Did you say 70% of people don't know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> so I had a bit of... I, I let myself go a little bit with the show that I did last in Edinburgh because I talked about the Rolling Stones in it mm. and specifically about the album Steel Wheels which came out in 1986 which was uh, or 89 and how bad it was and how disappointing it was and that that went all right but uh, it did feel like when you're dealing with material like that and it's so for me it's so like I know all that stuff and I could do one of those Edinburgh shows just about that subject and have people who are interested in that subject come and see that show. Uh, and that doesn't appeal to me. I. Mm. So what's the point of that? So I, uh, I think having that background information a lot of the time doesn't make it into what I do on stage. But when I do use some of that 
deep dive stuff that I know, I have to do it very consciously hmm. to make sure that it's not uh, off-putting or inducing a blank face in the audience. Yeah. So it's that middle ground between, like, you know, you can make a throwaway comment, like like you're saying, envying Alistair Becky King's audience, because he can make a throwaway comment about it mm. that a percentage of them will get because they're that audience. But equally, you know, so you'd almost like that side of it rather than going deep into it and just going, right, I'm going to do an Edinburgh show now about steel wheels, which is what yeah. some, you know, some people would do, absolutely, yeah. just go yeah. go deep in. And there is a, you know, there's an argument in comedy, I think the, the more niche you go, the more likely you are to get an audience because it's yeah. going to be, you, you get your, there's, there's that phrase, true fans, you get your thousand true fans or something. It's an Amanda Palmerism, yeah. but uh, I don't know, it's 5,000 true fans or something like that, that, you know, I think Stuart Lee said it in his book, you know, a thousand people willing to give 10, 10 pounds a year. Yeah. And, you know, there That's you are. 10,000 pounds. Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's what you need as a comedian. <laughs> as Sunil says, I've moved into a tax bracket. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, 5,000 people, 10 pounds a year, and you've got a career. Like, yeah. uh, so um, so there are probably ten uh, 5,000 people that would, you know, come to see shows or online or in person about mm. the, you know, about Rolling Stone thing, uh, albums. But so it doesn't interest you to go a deep, a deep dive, but it does inform almost what you'd like of an audience. You'd like an audience, you'd like to be talking to an audience of your peers a bit more. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, my peers, it'd <laughs> just be a bunch of, again, the same beardy guys who'll be enjoying the, uh, the, the Asimov chat at the start of this. Yeah. Uh, I, I like a mixed audience, really. I like uh, an age range. Mm. You know, if you're, if you're, it's like if you're in a social event, like we get this all the time, where if you're comedians and you're hanging out, talking with each other, and there's somebody there who's not a comedian, somebody's partner or something like that, and it's a point of, I'll always make the effort to try and include them in the conversation. That may mean either dropping the level of, uh, like, you know, lingo that you use or the references to people that they don't know, mm. and you explain as it goes along. So I feel like that's what I'm trying to do. Actually, I'm not trying, I'm not trying to do anything. I'm just trying to make people laugh. There's nothing conscious behind it. Yeah. I, I, I hear what you say, but there's also like, the, so for one of the things that you definitely do, like, um, uh, in a, in, on a Friday and Saturday night, you're really good with a kind of, you know, a club crowd as well as doing your Edinburgh shows. But something that I've seen you do in, in the room with club crowds and, is that often they don't know quite why they're laughing because you you know if you watch a Darren Walsh or if you watch you know Mark Simmons to use two very obvious examples you know where the mm. joke is and you know where the laugh is you know where the setup you know where the punchline is but your your work isn't so um, obviously punchline led there are punchlines obviously because mm. you know exactly where the laughs are coming you know where the pauses need to be in order to get the laughs you know what's setting things up you know what idea you're setting up in people's heads but I, I guess I'm uh, just leading you to talk about that maybe a little bit more of like what that journey's been like for you because you have changed in the, since I've known you to being even more. Yeah, kind of, I, I was very I was very joke driven to begin with. Yeah, it was it was all in the writing, and the writing's still super important, obviously. But the being funny yourself, I think, is much harder to be. Hmm. I think, you know. Not anyone, but most people can probably write a joke if they put their mind to it. But as far as being a funny uh, thing mm. that's happening in the room, 
Mm. It's still still something that I really aspire to, mm. rather than just oh, there's good material. Mm. But the, so there's a definitely a an overlap with my character or my persona or how I'm perceived on stage. With you know there there are things because I'm a middle aged bloke who's quite serious looking and as is fairly restrained. I know there's certain things that'll seem really quite mm. uh, absurd mm. coming from me, and I like being silly. Mm. And that's really fun. So there's no... Yeah, people don't expect your sense of fun. It's like that. The, one of the early um, jokes, <laughs> you with your kind of um, cyclist hat on, telling puns, <laughs> looking like a monk on the Camden Head stage, which was just, it, it was so not you that it was enjoyable. It was so surreal. And there is always, there's a there's a... Uh, unexpectedness to you, to you on stage. Well, that, that was, I, I, I remember doing that and yeah. that, I only did that once. I know, you only did it head. once and it was, it was joyous just, because it was, it was not you. I knew, was I, knew that it was, I knew that it was stupid. Yeah, stupid. And I thought it would be funny coming from me. Yeah. But it was also me trying to do different stuff rather yeah. than just bash out the same thing yeah. all the time and mm. uh, try and keep myself interested. Yeah. Uh, and amused. Yeah. Too. Uh, from memory, it just perplexed the audience yeah. <laughs> on the day. I know they really enjoyed it. <laughs> I am, um, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. You had some, you have some great kind of jokes of that style as well. Anyway, but one thing, as you were saying, that I realised is what makes you kind of like that. One of the things you stand out for to me is you're constantly working on material, and you've constantly got a new bit. It's like. And, it, and it's interesting because your work always stands out to comedians. And, I, 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 and I'm only putting this into the podcast. I'm not asking you a direct question because it's too kind of embarrassing to answer. But like when we did the night here on uh, Live with Bill Murray, your bit yeah. about having a relationship with the sea, all of the big comedians <laughs> were just like, oh, I wish I had that bit. They either came up to you at some point or were mentioning it when you weren't in the room. I can't remember. Mm. But just, you know, it was a kind of like you, you and, and that bit, I've not. I've heard, I've seen you develop it, but mm. I've also, you know, you've had another five other great bits that come in. And then I often, there is very rarely a time when I don't see you doing new material. So. Well, yeah, I, I, I feel like my, uh, my rate of turnover is incredibly slow. Mm. Um, so that's nice. To, and you need to be reminded as well, don't you, that the audience doesn't live inside your head. They don't see how long you've lived with certain ideas and how long it's taken to get them up and running. Mm. So like the the sea bit mm. now feels pretty not tired yeah. and I still enjoy doing it. But to me it's like I don't have anything much newer than that that's yeah. really as good as that. Yeah. And so I, I want to just keep producing stuff. About that night, that gig that we did, mm. that was so disconcerting because I – <laughs> had moved to I moved to Hastings in yeah. October last year in the middle of lockdown yeah. and I'd had so little contact with people at all mm. and then I came back to London I did this gig and I genuinely it was genuinely strange just being around people at all mm. and none of us had been performing comedy and I hadn't really done any online gigs or anything like that and then we did that gig it was a three minute spot <laughs> yeah and it got a very good response yeah. and a very good response from, you know, a couple of comedians that I really admire, yeah. people who I've gone to see numerous shows by mm. and who I've never met and would feel and felt, you know, fairly um, self-conscious being around them because I think I really admire their work. Mm. And they're going, oh, that's a great bit, blah, blah, blah. And 
it really fucked with my head because <laughs> but I didn't, why because people like me they, they no no it wasn't it wasn't it just on. didn't feel like that significant a bit mm. and I guess I didn't have the context of they hadn't seen me before mm. they didn't know so they just had it yeah. I, I don't know what it was but I actually texted Sunil the next day and said mate why did it get that response it, it really yeah. threw me out because I went from no contact. Yeah. No, nothing from people for so long. <laughs> and then to this lovely gig. With some iconic comedians yeah. that then just gave you so much kind of like affirmation and love yeah. of like, this is great. You've got to do more of that. And then back to the wilderness of science. It really was like that. And yeah. Absolutely. I was just questioning. I was going, what did I do different to what I used to do? <laughs> what was, is this, this, is this the, the thing that unlocks everything for me? What yeah, did I yeah, do? Yeah. That was, and I asked Sunil and Sunil, Went like, yeah, no, it was a good, well-written bit. The rest of us were just dicking around. They hadn't seen you before. It was like a good night. And I was like, yeah. oh, okay, that puts it into perspective. Yeah. But it really, <laughs> you know what it's like when you have like your first good gig. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you have that thrill and you can't sleep. Mm. And it was a bit like that. Mm. So, yeah. I think there was also around lockdown because we'd been so not, been performing hadn't been performing for a long time. There was, uh, there is always the question mark, can I still do this? Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, is this, is, does, <laughs> does this really exist as a, as a, because it's, it's very surreal as a job uh, or as a thing you do at the best of times, let alone kind of when you haven't done it for ages and you think back and like, I really had to listen to performances and go, oh yeah, no, these are, that's how I am funny. <laughs> like, oh. you know, remembering, okay, yeah, that's, that's that. Okay. So that's, mm. that's a, a real thing in the world because it's very difficult when, because as a, you're often like making a friend laugh and that's what being on stage is, but you haven't even seen any friends to make them laugh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? So you just have this achingly quiet abyss and then, yeah, there's, yeah. and, well, and, yeah, go on. You were in an aching, achingly quiet abyss as well, weren't you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, cause you're in Hastings. I was in Ilfracombe. <laughs> and uh, like we both kind of like moved out to the sea um, for uh, for lockdown, which I I don't know about you, but I thought was going to be oh that well initially it was with a partner and then they left. Yeah, <laughs> and it was like um, took the cat too. Didn't took it? the cat, yeah, took yeah. the cat. Didn't just leave. Took the cat um, and left me alone to to <laughs> to really think. Instead of thinking, am I? Am I? Is my joke does is it am i good at comedy it's, it's like it's so, am i good at life why am i not good at life? <laughs> it's so weird writing in that sort of isolation as well yeah. when you don't know when you're next going to be able to actually perform it yeah and i really need stage time in order to feel my way through a bit now hmm. i don't really write on stage but i definitely have the idea and i need the idea to get some kind of reaction hmm. uh to to push me to, to keep working on it mm. and if it's just writing on a, on a bit of paper which is what I did originally you know most of my stuff was you know what it's like how hard it is to get stage time when you're first starting and yeah. stuff and uh, so the joke had to exist by itself on the page mm. uh, unrelated to whoever was saying it mm. and so my first the first stuff I wrote was proper jokes mm. and they could have been said by anybody mm. And as I became more comfortable as a performer, it became more about me being funny on stage. Mm. And that's still a path that I'm... And what were the... If you had to name a couple of benchmark moments 
along that journey or like, you know, it doesn't have to be single gigs or single jokes, <clears throat> but things that stand out of like where it's almost like, a, you know, a sh- something dropped and you're just like, oh yeah, okay, that. that I, I, you know, almost the transition between what you're saying and what you're doing that's funny or... There's a bit that I used to do about job interviews mm. and there's a moment in that where I... Uh, you would have seen it a, a hundred times. Is that there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh no! So when they, when they when the interviewer says, "We're looking for somebody who is passionate about customer engagement," mm. and I do a kind of fake laugh, and then my face straightens, like my face <laughs> falls. Yeah, yeah. And that was because the rest of the time I was pretty much just deadpan, mm. and the fact that I could actually get a laugh, and I got a bigger laugh with that than any of the written stuff in that bit, mm. was just that. <laughs> And then the face fall. Mm. And I was like, oh, that's me acting funny. Yeah. Rather than just saying a, uh, you know, yeah. a group of phrases that's identifiably a joke. Yeah. So that's one thing. And and how would you apply that if you're writing a bit now? Do you, do you look for bits where you can do, I mean, you know, in a very basic way and act out, but where you can act funny and go, oh, I could play this out rather than say it? Sometimes, yeah. Mm. I think I'll deliberately leave something vague mm. rather than scripting it out entirely. And I'll just, when I get on stage, I'll try and convey that idea however I will. And that means that I'm also having to draw on the, the whatever it is that pushes us to be funny with our friends, mm. which is kind of maybe the truest form of us being funny. Mm. Like I fucking know. Um, there's always always this tendency to yeah. Well, that's you got to do that. You can't not like it's just verbalizing something. The purest thing in life, Barry, is uh, <laughs> who are you to talk about this? Uh, but if, if I'm being funny with friends and I'm goofing around, that's usually playful and silly. Hmm. Whereas if I'm just writing. With pen on paper, mm. um, you don't get in touch. I find it harder to get in touch with that. Yeah, and I really enjoy the silly stuff. Yeah, on stage. So, sorry to answer your question. There are bits when I think, oh, I could do an act out here. Mm. I'll leave that and I'll gesture here, mm. or I rather than literally say the thing, mm. I will convey it somehow. However, I feel I need to in the moment, and that may be. Uh, a shrug or a gesture or pointing mm. or dropping my head or mm. something like that. But – and then I'll just go on stage and, and try it and, and after a while I work out what the best way to do it is mm. just by doing it. And, yeah, getting the response yeah, one way or the other. So so there was that moment and I, I, I stalled you a bit to talk more about that but you were going to say another thing. No, I don't have another thing. <laughs> okay. I don't think I do. What was the original question? Well, it was, was it kind of key moments or moments of that you like there was. Uh, oh, that that we, it's it's really incremental. Yeah, it really is. There's very few. I mean, that was a a realization that when I saw it was actually footage of me doing the five minute spot at the comedy store, mm. the second open spot that I did, where I didn't care. And so it went really well. Mm. And one of the biggest laughs was me doing that little facial thing. Mm. 
And that was, yeah, that was a, a telling moment. But outside of that, you know what it's like? You just keep doing it. You keep doing it and mm. eventually you become better or you don't really recognize what you were doing before. You think you don't realize on a day-to-day basis how much you've improved or how much funnier you are or how much comfortable you are as a performer. Mm. And then you look back and you go, oh, we've gotten this far mm. just by putting one foot in front of the other after every day. Yeah, that's that's kind of a good description of life in general. Just, like, oh, Christ, I, yeah. I, I can do that now. <laughs> I think that I was going to say that the one of the, the probably the the most the most encouraging moment I had was doing downstairs at the King's Head and Rich Hall was on and I could see him laughing during my set hmm. like through the whole thing yeah, yeah and afterwards he came and said like well you go, wow, that was great. You were really funny and wanted to talk to me yeah like, fucking hell that's yeah, yeah, yeah I think that's as good as I felt about doing comedy yeah yeah. yeah. At, you know, at any point, mm. just that approbation of the the uh, well, not superiors, forebears. Jesus Christ, what's a what's a word normal people use? Peers. Well, well, this is the thing. Yeah. Am I a peer of Rich Hall, the guy who's been doing comedy for nearly forty I sp- years? I suppose to a neutral in the audience, you are. Like if you're on that same gig, so you you're on the same bill. Like oh, that's uh, that's the weird. Well, I guess that's. I'm sure we all have that where you don't. We, I mean, we have a hierarchy in our head, but most people yes. that go to a gig are just like, oh, here's another funny thing and another funny person. Yeah. Like, we don't really have an idea. Like, you know, in our head, like, my God, you look at, say, uh, you know, Simon Munnery comes on and you know his back catalogue and you know mm. how much he's influenced people. But on the night, he's just, you know, most people have no idea who he is yeah. or, you know, unless somebody's currently on TV. I used to, I used to love that at, uh, you do a, a night when you're just sort of quite, early on and you're getting your tight five together and you just work on it constantly and so it gets really tight and then you go do a night somewhere where there's an established act on Mm. and they're doing new material they're just reading off notes they're just mucking around and then you go and do your tight five and you do better than them and someone says to you after, he goes, oh, I thought you were better than <laughs> Mr. Established Act. And you go, like, yeah, that's right. That's right. I'll take it. <laughs> I'll, t- I'll take it on this occasion. <laughs> I, I'm going to displace, I'm going to forget the clipboard that they had. Yeah. But yeah, I, I am, um, <clears throat> by, I think that having, it's almost pre-approved laughs. If somebody that you respect is laughing at your stuff is, you know, uh, somebody that's an industry professional as well. It's yeah. just like there, there's a special thrill to going, hey, it's like making your friends laugh, isn't it, really? Because yeah. like you've made a connection with that comedian mm. or whatever. It's like, so you write, like I've worked with you on material and stuff and you've you've taken to co-writing and co-directing. You're like, you're working with Heidi Regan at the moment. Yeah, I, I did script notes for Heidi on the radio notes. show. That's right. And But we just, we just, uh, yeah, enjoy writing together now. Mm. Uh, just literally, sorry, I'm not co-writing her stuff. Yeah, but yeah, we yeah. just sit down and, and share each other our ideas with each other. Well, that's why I was going with it because it's like the, when I've worked with you on stuff, and I've mm. you know seen you working with Heidi as well. Of like, it is a lot. Of, you know, it's it's a um, it's a friendly chat with kind of you know. Like um, just getting involved in other people's funny bits and yeah. and play, playing with them and you know yeah. but also discerningly and like I found found your um, kind of uh, 
insight or versions or you know uh, playing out of the idea in lots of different ways mm. um, really helpful and like how, how are you finding beginning to work with people because it's that's relatively new isn't it it's very new yeah. and I, I really enjoy it it's really it's really fun and I have a I have an aptitude for it and it's in some ways easier than creating my own stuff because the, the thing is already there and I have that distance from it uh, with, with somebody else's material. So I find it easier to play around with ideas and, and mm. try different variations and, and, and muck around, whereas with my own stuff I can be overly precious about it at times and I'm so caught up with, you know, what am I trying to say and trying to... I don't, as you probably saw from the the question at the start of the, the podcast, I don't have a real strong handle on who I am or what I am. Mm. And so I'm still working that out. I'm still trying to write so I'm true to myself. And it's just very complicated. There's a lot at stake with my own stuff. Someone else's stuff, you know, let's fuck around. That's, that's good fun. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to worry about who they are. You can just have fun. Well, like, uh, I don't yeah. really know who they are. So talking with, if I'm talking with Heidi or, mm. or, or you or with, you know, any of the people that we know, you can know who they are on stage. Mm. So it's almost easier to write to that character. Mm. You can immediately say, like, they wouldn't say that. They would say yeah, this. Yeah. They would go in that direction. Whereas with myself, it's a bit more like, you know, would I uh, go like that? Would yeah, I say I that? I could do that. I mean, I could. Yeah, I could do that. <laughs> you know, then... there's a lot more of a, you're an active choice rather than, I think, uh, I suppose, from the outside looking in, you've kind of made a lot of the choices of this person's behaviour through snapshots. And I, I think with it's over, you get over-information, you get more, like you get too much information about your own <laughs> your own yes. internal state that you just can't make a solid decision and we're changing all the time. The variables are changing all the time. Yeah. So it's, it's almost just simplifies things. So you get to see things in almost more caricature. I always think the stronger mm. acts are those acts that can harness a caricature, a character version of themselves in an authentic way. Mm. So, so they are themselves, but I mean, but they're not, but they are. Yeah. You know, it's almost like you talk to Tony Law. And Tony Law is like that in real life. He absolutely is like that in real life, but he's not like that in real life. And there's an enjoyment yeah. of, like, him sitting in that part of himself. But I think that's mm. like with Rich Hall. Like, Rich Hall really is like that. Yeah. <laughs> but he's also not like that. Yeah, he's, he's an incredible writer as well and mm. uh, as, a, as a work ethic. They're helping other people with their, their writing, just giving script notes or whatever. It's just so fun. Mm. It's, you know, you, you laugh a lot. Yeah, yeah. It's a really good time. Mm. And <laughs> yeah. uh, and you get to hang out and you actually see people, whereas like writing on your own can be kind of yeah. tough. Like, you know, especially after the, the year that we've had, just like, oh, great, I get to spend. Like, I, I don't know. Did you did you do Chris Head's course? No. Did you Did you come through? You didn't. So I wrote with Chris Head for years. He's a comedy teacher now and he was a um, sketch writer Sunil did it so mm. uh, like uh, I emceed Sunil's first gig it wow. was uh, yeah I know <laughs> the George did you know that you didn't know that I didn't know you emceed it no. mm. it was because uh, Ed Caruana was doing it as well and uh, uh, Fog Caruana yeah Kieran Kieran yeah um, Ben Fogg I think okay maybe or maybe he was in a different class and then uh, yeah a few other all, all the alumni all the alumni but um it was interesting because Sunil was kind of fully formed in a way. 
like he really you know and you can imagine that like um but the, the reason i mentioned chris is that we wrote together for for 10 years and it was an enjoyable process writing together putting on shows was a lot tougher because the edinburgh experience just got us into debt so there are a lot of tensions around money and stuff but um the he then went on to teach and got everything he needed out of teaching hmm. like very quickly just like oh yeah i enjoyed this and it was he could write with other people and it just made it a lot more of an enjoyable process and the interactivity of um having a group of people there like um so it kind of fed him like he does he does mm. do bits of creative stuff now but really not as much as he wanted to uh as he used to sorry but and i and i don't think he's unhappy with that i think he he enjoys that life and isn't like doing it as a makeshift kind of and he gets paid well for it mm. but is that something that you think you could work more in like i always think that i had this conversation with tatty mcleod that um you know there's being a comedian <laughs> and there's living <laughs> financially as a comedian <clears throat> and those two things are kind of you know they're t different paths yeah. sometimes like and you've got to find a way to survive financially I, at the same time I, i'm i have the the good fortune of uh working three days a week mm. at another job mm. so which is you know it's an arrangement mm. and it allows me to do comedy or it allows me to work on comedy and and try and make stuff that i that I like mm. and that I'm uh, proud of and try and be better. I have no real game plan. That's all I think about most of the time is just trying to be better and funnier and and good and something that I would want to see myself. Mm. The idea of helping other people with writing or performing is it does appeal to me, but I would if I made if I made a living from doing that, I feel like it would kind of kill my drive to mm. to perform. Yeah. Maybe I don't know, but I, I and there's no shame in in uh, teaching or coaching or yeah. anything like that. But I still want to focus on making my own thing. Mm. You enjoy the drive to perform. It's essentially, you know, like that's that. It's you know, that is a yeah, a driver, a key driver. In yeah, the, you know, it's enjoy is a strong word. It's, uh, <laughs> like it's it's good. Yeah. It, I mean, you know what it's like. It, the, when when you keep at it and the remuneration is not really there and it's an incredibly hotly contested yeah. industry yeah. to try and make your way in. And there are times when I think, what am I doing? Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're, we're... So the drive, sometimes I think, is this just a? Is this just a reflex action now? Mm. Am I con continuing to do this out of habit? Is it homeostasis? Is this just what I do, so I do it? Yeah. yeah. Like, have I invested too much time in it now? Sunk cost. It's yes. Just, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I can't give up now. Yeah. And yeah, you've got that brilliant joke about it, haven't you? It's like uh, in the in the hours in the work life of your oh, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. of um, uh, <laughs> you know a nine to five of your life. It's after I can't remember the actual word. Yeah, I won't make you say just, it. But <laughs> I can't even remember it now. But, uh, but um, you know, it's it's past lunch, and it's not that late in the afternoon. But it's too too late to start something new. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> something like that. I um, I just do. I just really enjoy doing it. Yeah. I I find the word hobby very ugly. Yeah, and I would never 
if I ever felt like I was doing it as a hobby, yeah. I think I would quit because that would be me taking up space yeah. that others, somebody else could be using. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty serious for me, I guess. Yeah. Well, it is. It's something that you like live and breathe. It's like, you know, I'm, and it, I, one of the luxuries I think of getting paid work regularly in from an agent is it takes away <laughs> that moment of you having to decide whether you do it or not. Mm. Like if, if you've got an income that comes from a separate source, yep. like, you know, you don't have to choose to say this is what you do. <laughs> yeah. You know, you don't have to go, I'm actively self-consciously saying I'm a comedian rather than look at my bank balance, look at where my money's coming in from, look what I'm doing on, you know, like Helen Bauer, who's yes. just brilliantly taking off at the moment and like, you know, and rightfully and is everywhere and is brilliant at what she does. Like, you know, she doesn't, literally doesn't do anything else. She doesn't do the baker anymore. She is like, there's no question what do you do oh, I'm a comedian I'm, this is what I'm doing mm. but there'd be people that we know like you know but maybe a year ago eight two years ago there would have been a lot of you know question for her of like well I work at a bakery but I do either, yeah. you know and and she was no less of a comedian back then we know <laughs> you know yeah. she was just as good but it's I think it's one of the privileges of being in certain positions and I don't mean privilege in a kind of in a nasty sense I just mean in a kind of owning the fact that you then don't get the emotional drag of having to think about that extra thing yeah <laughs> of deciding to do it every day yeah I, I mean I, I would like to I, I don't think I'll ever say that I'm a comedian mm. until it's my primary income yeah and there was it was sort of you know maybe that before lockdown Mm. That was certainly what I was had in my mind, what I was working towards. Mm. And then lockdown kind of shook some of that out of me. Mm. And I am more open to writing work and stuff like that, mm. as well as doing the live comedy now. But um, yes, I like being a comedian. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, and I was really just talking about the directing and... Um, and I guess one further thing I was going to say about that is if you were getting the money, if you were getting money in from directing and it's related to comedy and you were also performing, would you feel more justified in saying you were a comedian? Or yeah, like, yeah, yeah, abso absolutely. Yeah, yeah it's, it's absolutely. I mean, if, if I'm working in the industry, yeah, in the industry, yeah, then you know, if, even if I was making the rest of my money working the bar here yeah. at the Bill Murray, yeah, I would feel more like being able to say that. I think because my my day it's, job is so different, yeah. is so different, and it's also demanding. Yeah, it's not a, uh, it's not easy money. Mm. It's not, or it's not. Uh, it's it's. I'm a web developer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's requires a certain percentage of my mental processing power. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like that is an obstacle because if I was doing something that didn't require that processing power, I would have more time. Yeah. More, more wherewithal, yeah, to come up with comedy, yeah. So, I'm on the fence about that because I think I'd probably be funnier if I was working those three or four days in a pub, mm. and then doing comedy in my off time. But I would also be absolutely knackered, yeah, because one gets so tired, yeah, as one gets so old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just interesting the where because I don't know many people, even the professional people that you know the Tony Laws or the Simon like Simon Munnery was working in a chicken factory last 
summer. And like, there's nobody that I'd identify as being more a comedian <laughs> than Simon yeah. Munnery. But it's just, I, I'm only naming it as it's interesting that it is like, it's so hard to earn a living, even if you're Simon Munnery, let alone kind of, you know, just coming up or starting uh, yourself. Like I, or, you know, even five, 10 years in and learning stuff. I, I was, I, I was interested as well of talking about your experience of going from club to Edinburgh because mm. you've done like how many hours have you put together altogether uh, now? Uh, three. Three. And what was your <clears throat> like um, uh, ex uh, kind of learning curve in uh, like in putting hours together? Is there anything that kind of stands out for you? It's like I think the last experience you had was the more pleasurable one in terms of you're getting audiences you had some nice reviews early on so it wasn't as kind of as yeah, like that always makes it a bit easier yeah the last one was the the last one was the best show I've done and it was the best experience it was still hard though it mm. was still really hard and yeah. it was still very very stressful yeah the I mean I put more effort into the writing I put I spent more I started earlier I dug deeper mm. in the writing. I just put more effort into it. I think also because I'd gone part-time, mm. I wasn't working full-time anymore. So the other two hours I put together, mm. I was still working a full-time job. Yeah. And, yeah, I look back now and I think, oh, I went to Edinburgh whilst working a full-time job and uh, trying to gig in the evenings yeah. as often as I could yeah. and work on material that way. And it was just... It was just too too hard, and it ended up being a real slog generally in my life because I was, I was overburdening myself. Yeah. One of the things Adam Bloom said to me quite early on, I had did a gig with him, and it went pretty well. And afterwards, he said to me, uh, "Oh, so you still got a job?" And mm. I go, "Yeah, yeah." And he goes, "Full time or part time?" Mm. And I said, "Oh, full time." He goes, "Got to go part time, mate. Got to go part time." <laughs> And he's absolutely right. You, it's you don't have the yeah, yeah, yeah. you don't have the wherewithal mm. if you're working full time to mm. I don't anyway. Mm. So that Edinburgh, the last Edinburgh, I was working part time the year that I was writing it. Uh, I'd stopped drinking mm. as well, which certainly helped. Mm. But even then, the the first show that I did in Edinburgh, 2019, was a clusterfuck. It mm. was really poor. 2019 was the first one. No, no, the last one. The last one, yeah, sorry. The one that went well. Yeah. And I... Oh, so the first show in 2019. Yeah, the first sorry, show yeah. that I did in 2019 went really badly and mm. it didn't make sense. Yeah, and <laughs> terrifying. I, yeah, I was, it was horrible because I'd put yeah. so much effort into it. Yeah. And I went home and I, I didn't go out that night. I stayed at home and I kept rewriting it and reworking it mm. literally all day and woke up early the next day, like at, at six o'clock or something, and started writing again mm. to get it ready for midday that day. Mm. Um, the second day, uh, the show was pulled because mm. there weren't enough audience, mm. thankfully. Mm. So I went home and I kept writing on it again. Mm. And then the Saturday, I had a, a, enough audience to put it on, and I totally reworked it. Mm. And it went well, and I had two reviewers in, and they gave it four-star reviews, mm. which started the momentum yeah. of other people coming to see it and other reviewers coming to see it. But those first two days were horrible. Yeah, yeah. They were stressful and the fact that I'd, I'd stopped drinking, I'd gone part-time, 
I was focused so much on doing this show. Mm. This was what I was doing this year. This is what all the effort was going into. Mm. And to do that first show and have it be dog shit. Mm. And you think, I've really thrown myself at this this hard. Yeah. <laughs> and it's going to suck. And I'm going to spend the next, you know, three and a half weeks doing a show that sucks. Mm. And people are going to come along and see that it sucks. <laughs> and that's what I've done. That was a horrible prospect. Yeah. <laughs> so horrible. It's very motivating, though. <laughs> it was very motivating. But it, it just the horror staring into the abyss is very motivating, isn't it? Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> the apocalypse uh, now of uh, of comedy yeah. writing, and that's the course that you give. So you take yeah. away everything from everyone, and then goes, you've got to write yourself out of out of this this bullet. Yeah, yeah. And it, it wasn't a perfect show after that. It was definitely the best show I've done, but it was still, mm. you know, flabby bits in it. Mm. But the the good bits were enough to to uh, you know. Hold the hold the tent up between those bits, so to speak. Mm. Uh, you know, when you do your Edinburgh show and then you come back to the real world and you're doing gig gigs and you think, oh, I'll throw in a bit from my show, it's quite telling how little of the show you can actually throw in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so much of the show that will just work in Edinburgh or work in the context of a show where people have come to see you mm. do whatever you want to do as opposed to appearing on a bill when your only job is to make them laugh yeah definitely there's they've bought in at that point like if they're going to see you they may as well laugh because that's all you've got there whereas if you're on a bill with other people just like you've got to grab me because there's going to be somebody else along in 10 20 minutes time and uh, i might want to just easily laugh at them instead yeah yeah i'd love to do an edinburgh show where it's just all full of material that you could take out and play anywhere yeah uh, it's, it's funny that's the kind of the way that Tom Stade does Edinburgh's but it's you know I think but then uh, it it's interesting because that's almost like the American hour is what people would say it's like just mm. solid bits solid bits solid bits that don't necessarily uh, they aren't necessarily cohesive because they're about just being funny rather than any because narrative I don't know what you might find but making things fit together isn't always like um, the funniest part of a show I don't know What's, how do you square that circle it can be yeah you know there's payoffs mm. I had um, there's a couple of callbacks mm. in that show which people really liked I was I wasn't keen on doing it at first I felt like a callback is a little bit of a bit of a hacky trick mm. but they were they were okay but the the end of the show was essentially a punchline the rest of the show is essentially a, a lead up to that punchline, mm. and it got a great laugh when it when it worked, mm. and that was really satisfying. That mm. was a lovely way to end the show with a button on the end of it, just like yeah, winding up the winds tension it up to and that. It all feels complete. It feels all of a piece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that was uh, that was lovely. I mean, I don't know if I'd. I feel like I I got lucky with finding that, mm. and I don't know if I would be able to write to purpose mm. such an ending mm. without it feeling contrived. Yeah. Well, do you find, though, that most writing is taking a chance, going down an avenue and just hoping something is at the end of that avenue and, like, you know, whether it's that or whether it's not, it's just like you just have to keep going down cul-de-sacs until yeah. eventually you find an alleyway. All oh, right, this connects with this other stuff. Yeah. It's like, and it's just endless 
legwork. Yeah. <laughs> you don't get to see, you don't get to choose the route you go. You just get to go down these. Well, that's why it's quite useful uh, workshopping with other people because mm. they can see the connections that you don't because mm. you have, you know, three or four bits and you've got the bit that you call the train bit and the bit that you call the, uh, whatever, the debt bit and mm. the bit that you call the food bit and the bit that you call the luggage bit. Mm. And somebody else can hear those bits and go, I oh, know the train bit's about this mm. and the debt bit is about this and those two things are related. Mm. And you go, oh, my God, you're right. And you put them together mm. and it becomes a really strong piece mm. that may not have the original intention, but it's it works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and you couldn't see it yourself because you're so close to the material. Mm. Which is pretty much the definition of what a director does. It's that outside eye, you know, it's the, the, it, and it's, uh, again, why I, you know, the times that we've worked together appreciate that kind of discernment like you know you've you've got a very subtle discernment in the way that you kind of uh, perceive us because you've got quite high standards i'm always happy to go for the second option whereas <laughs> you you will always go for the fifth like it's just no other people have thought of that very you know people like for me i'm I, I like if it gets a laugh and i can play it and play around with it I'm, I'm a lot less discerning and that's not to my credit <laughs> but it's I think it comes from being an MC and grabbing the quickest mm. thing in order to move the show on and I'm, I, I've gotten into that habit a lot I don't think there's any any shame in it it's uh, if you can be funny with it then mm. I don't know you, you know what it's like you start off having very like anything when you start when you start anything when you're young and you have real set ideas about the right and wrong way of everything mm. and the more you do stuff you just end up going like man whatever <laughs> whatever works <laughs> it's working how can I criticise something that's working yeah. <laughs> you know you sit up the back and you just go oh their, their jokes aren't as good as mine and like, yeah but the audience is fucking laughing <laughs> That's what you've been paid to come here and do. So, yeah. Although there are reviewers that can sit in a room <laughs> and listen to people laugh and go, "That that this is not working." That's true. Yeah. <laughs> Which is like the the, the the cognitive dissonance of like this. Um, we've got to um, wrap it up. I um, the I think the one thing that I was going to quickly chat to you about was moving to Hastings and how that's <coughs> been relative to being in London. Because so obviously I, like, I moved to London from Ireland specifically for the comedy scene here because mm. there's nowhere else like, that, that I... Like in, in Ireland, there was just like... When I was in Galway, there were like two clubs <laughs> on one day of the week each and that's, that's it. You could gig on a Friday or a Tuesday, <laughs> you know, and um, unless you want to travel to Dublin or whatever. And, you know, it, there, there aren't that many clubs outside of the outside of London zone in, mm. in, in, in England, but there are... But there's, but um, how have you found for yourself being out in Hastings a bit more? Like, um, has it focused you, or has it been kind of feeling I, more out on a limb? I think it's focused me because I can still come and do gigs, but I have to pay more to do it. Mm. So I have to get on the train, and London's not that far. Mm. I've come up here to do a sort of new material night mm. to night, and. Yeah, I'm more I'm more selective about what I do now. I don't. When I lived in London, sometimes comedy was just a uh, uh, a social network, mm. and you go do a gig just because you want to be around people or you want to see certain people. Or when I was still drinking, mm. when I was drinking, it was a real uh, double edged sword that I could gig all the time because I would think, oh great, I could go do that night, 
Mm. And I'd look at the lineup and go, oh, such and such is there. Yeah. I can have a pint with them. Yeah. And in my mind, I was then looking forward to having a pint with that person rather than going yeah. and doing what I had to do at yeah. the gig. <laughs> so the comedy can, could sometimes take a, a mm. back seat. Mm. Whereas now, if I go do a gig, I'm thinking about the gig. Mm. Uh, and that's down to, well, the fact that I don't drink anymore as well as the fact that it takes me, you know, an hour or two hours mm. to get to the gig. So I gig in I gig in Brighton, mm. sort of yeah, fairly regularly, you know, once or uh, once a week or so. Mm. That's not that far, and oh, I do miss having access to constant stage time because when you have a new bit, like I said, the, the way I write now, I need the stage to 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 work on things. Mm. So, yeah. but the honest answer is I could not afford to live in London mm. or I couldn't afford to buy a place in London and I wanted to get a mortgage. Mm. So that's Hastings it is. Yeah. It's a, it's a compromise. Yeah. And uh, well, there's also the time I always think with London that you, it's so expensive to be here that you end up making either a sacrifice of time <laughs> or a sacrifice of, uh, um, well, no, you, you have to sacrifice your time to earn money or yeah. be poor or, you know, and it's harder to have, you know, like if you live in London and you've got like a part-time job, you're out in the, the, the outskirts you're, yeah. or you're in a flat share in an awful house somewhere, which is, I think, can be very debilitating for your creative life because if you're not happy where you are, you, it's a lot harder to have the space in which to to be chilled enough to shoot the shit and have fun and be mm. silly you. Mm. <laughs> like if you, if you if you know you've got three pound in your bank account <laughs> and you know and you're going to have to go home to share a room with uh, <laughs> or, you know, share a, a flat with the people that you don't necessarily yeah. know or, or might be partying that night or whatever, just like, oh, no. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's very hard to be light um, in that way. But, um, well, listen, uh, go on. Yeah. No, carry on. I was, just gonna, I was just going to moan about being in London. Go on, moan about being in London. Oh, sometimes it's not very nice. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. There's no, there's no original take on that is there no. <laughs> I you know lockdown just allowed me to um, really really sink into how much you didn't like living in London well, like I mean, we, we all did that I think There's, yeah I think everyone did and that's why everyone's moving out of London and yeah. I, I love London as a city but I can't afford to enjoy it yeah I can't afford to especially you know I'm middle aged now and I, I would love to live here if I had you know, if I was getting 200 grand a year yeah, yeah. or something like that, where you can effectively distance yourself from the parts of that are inconvenient or, or unappealing and you could go exploit every part of what it has to offer. Mm. But I, I, I don't and I never will get even close to that. Mm. So it's just grubbing away at an existence, which is, uh, it doesn't get any easier. No. No. Anyway, that's my that's my little. <clears throat> well, well, it's it's interesting because I think it is relevant to the the uh, platonic idea of what a comedian is. It's almost like a, the noble kind of 
struggle of mm. being on a um a mattress in a you know in a in a dump yeah, yeah. whatever and just like but I'm doing it for the art because I believe in the art and that is that you can do that yeah. <laughs> for a certain amount of time but it does wear you down it does yeah, you if know if I was 28 I'd be fine with doing that yeah and I but I I can't anymore yeah and no, not that I ever did for comedy mm. but if I was 20 you're just so much more resilient you know mm. you are you can sleep on any surface yeah yeah, you really can. Yeah. <laughs> I can't sleep on any surface. At the I, I stayed with friends recently. They even had a spare room for me and the mattress was not to my liking. I felt <laughs> bad after it. Whereas, you know, 20, 30 years ago, yeah. they just go like, oh, yeah, we've uh, we've emptied out the pool. You can sleep in that. Yeah. yeah it's sweet. Okay. <laughs> that sounds much more convincing with, with an Australian accent. Oh, That's, you can uh, sleep in the pool if you want, mate. Yeah, cheers. You got a lighter? Yeah, all right, mate. <laughs> Listen, Nick, thanks very much for coming in and talking. My pleasure. Thank you very much. And that was Nick Ellery. I hope you uh, enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Get a chance to see him. I know that he's always putting shows together and he's just, you know, one of those people that uh, just keeps working, keeps doing it, keeps chipping away, has always got something new whenever you see him and, uh, you know, is does not rest in that respect. And uh, so it makes him always interesting always good to see so um yeah and if you uh want to come and see me uh i should always promote myself i always forget that and uh, i know that not everybody listens to every single one of these so i kind of say something once and then think oh, i should say it again so do listen to my podcast if you get a chance ambient tales for traumatized children i've also uh, got a podcast called the obituary show which is uh, six episodes so that's um dead people it's about a podcast about dead people um, but yeah, Ambient Tales for Traumatised Children is probably the uh, the thing that I'm pushing at the moment uh, as much as I can. And uh, also, the uh, if you look at the web series that I'm doing with uh, Mark Silcox, I think you'll enjoy that as well. In terms of this podcast, do support it. Angel Comedy tries as best to give away as much of the money that comes in our way as possible in terms of profit. Like we don't we don't aim to make a profit if uh, we share our profits with staff. We uh, make sure that staff's wages are as high as humanly possible for the continuation of the company. Um, we also um, make sure that our room hire fees are much lower, uh, as low as they can be. So like to hire a room, I don't know if you know this, but to hire a room to do a show in London costs about 200 to 300 pounds. Uh, if you look at any other venue, the Museum of Comedy, the Hen and Chickens, um, you know, like uh, it costs a lot of money to do that. So uh, we are, room hire fee is not 200 or 300 pounds, it is 35 pounds. Uh, we keep it as low as possible, so there's not a barrier, a financial barrier to access. We also um, give comics 75% of uh, any tickets that come in, which is also, again, much higher than 99% of the other venues that uh, run shows, music, comedy, anything. So yeah, do support us if you get a chance, because we are trying our best to, in deliberate ways, to help people obviously we can't do everything but um and we're i think we're the only comedy venue maybe other than the stand that gets people doing their first gig as well as people like kevin bridges or eddie Izzard or maria bamford coming along to do to do their shows so um you know we we try to offer spots to every single level of the comedy community and um 
and yeah, and offer the space for free uh, to people where, as and when we can. So uh, yeah, we we are kind of like, a, we're worth £2.50 a month or more if you'd like to give it on Patreon and you get a load of extra things for that as well as extra bits of the podcast and um, uh, also, you know, early access to tickets for Big Axe, that kind of thing. Oh, and you also, for our sitcom, if you, uh, if you want to hear our sitcom with, uh, or see our sitcom, uh, you can get access to that through Patreon as well. Anyway, that's I just suddenly launched on a hard sell of what Angel Comedy was. So um, about two people are probably listening. And uh, one of them is the podcast um, editor going, is he going to stop talking now? So uh, anyway, I will speak to you again in about two weeks' time. Thanks so much for listening and I'll, I'll speak to you again. Bye, everyone.